All right, hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Midweek Matinee. We will be discussing the 1997 movie Perfect Blue. Uh, with me this week is Brett Beck. What's up there, buddy? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. I just watched, uh, I watched a movie. We'll talk about what I thought about <laughs> it as we get into it, but I watched a movie. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Also joining me this week in place of Blake Popes is my buddy Mark. Mark, how you doing? Hello, everybody. I'm doing quite well, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. Mark, so you, I know you do a lot of uh, our internet stuff. Why don't you tell our wonderful audience what you do? I shall. Okay, so uh, yeah, I go by Mark the Cyborg on the internet. Um, I, I'm called that because I, I'm an amputee and I have a robot right leg. So uh, <laughs> it, was the, the, it was the easiest name for me to think of when I started like making YouTube videos. Absolutely. And um, I work for a company called Geeks and Gamers where um, I do their uh, video game reviews, essentially. Uh, sometimes I'll do movie reviews, but honestly not very often. I'm, I mostly cover video games. For sure. Uh, they often will cover kind of like tabloidy entertainment industry drama like star wars stuff and marvel stuff things like that yes so they, they brought me on to be the kind of uh less controversial more sort of apolitical guy who just like talks about video games and that's it and uh Hell yeah. that, that's what i like doing so yeah fuck that's yeah pretty much my deal nice I also have my own channel called mark the cyborg but on there i pretty much just stream i do metal gear streams with my girlfriend and mm-hmm. i have a show where uh, me and one of the other guys from geeks and gamers and my girlfriend talk about attack on titan and we actually yeah. just finished recording our newest episode yeah i got on a stream with you a while ago actually once we played a bunch of apex that was fun yeah apex is a good time uh, that's my game man so mark how do you go about doing a podcast for attack on titan this is a general question because every time someone does these kind of things is there like is this something you start with an idea for an end insight or how do you go about kind of doing that well no we've just been discussing each episode as they're airing so um and none of us have read the manga and i'm I'm pretty adamant about none of us reading ahead because the Mm. the manga is significantly ahead of where the anime is and it's looking like the the anime is going to end before the manga ends so our theory is that they're going to make some movies or something like that to, to finish up the story but uh pretty much what we do is the episodes air at usually about 4 p.m eastern on sundays and so monday at 7 p.m um, me and x-ray girl and lethal lightning hop on my channel and we talk about the episode and sometimes we have a guest on and this was kind of a slower episode so if you mm-hmm. <laughs> if you are a big attack on titan fans i don't know maybe the first episode we did was after episode five so we just kind of covered the first five episodes of the season and then we've been doing one episode per episode since then nice so, uh, so yes, kind of I, like I, a companion I, podcast to a degree I, it kind of yeah like yeah. You know, we found that lethal lightning and i found that after every episode we'd be like talking to each other for at least an hour about what happened so yeah okay should we just like do this on one of our channels and pull, <laughs> that pull is exactly super chats? Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly how triangle squared got started saul and i would just hang out and then every time we'd hang out we'd end up bullcrapping about games for two or so hours and it's like if we're spending two hours doing this couldn't we just record it <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah. man it's interesting because we've been talking internally about doing a once a week podcast for the next 50 years on <laughs> young and the restless assuming <laughs> that it eventually ends so it's cool that you know maybe we'll can lean on you for some of that experience well, yeah, like actually, uh, my girlfriend and I were watching a um, a, a show last night called. Uh, it's one of the shows. I think it was called The Challenge, but it's some like reality kind of 
game show like survivor thing and yeah. i i was this is the first time i ever seen the show like i really don't watch reality tv or like those kind of shows at all i used to watch survivor like like when it first started because that was back when i still had tv but she's trying to explain to me the rules so i'm like wait so some of these people are rookies and some have been on for like multiple seasons and she's like yeah i was like so wait th- this person's been on for four seasons like have you been on since this started she's like they're on like season 46 yeah and i'm like how long has the show been going on she's like like two years i was like well, how does <laughs> like reality tv is so weird i'm like how do you get to like 46 seasons within like a couple years they no do, like, I, like six episodes and take a week off and then we're back with season two <laughs> absolutely I, I, just, I don't understand it at all no i i couldn't I couldn't explain to you the difference between reality TV TV and real life on the honestly, which is actually an interesting transition because in the movie, this is uh, it's very much a what's real and what's not real. So, um, yeah, Uh, Mark, I guess we didn't actually talk about this. I'm an idiot. Um, how did you like the movie? I mean, I think you've said you've seen it. I loved it. I actually, yeah, um, I originally saw it. Not right when it came out. I think probably in like the early 2000s. Um, I think um, when I was in high school, like I'm uh, born in 84. So like I was in ninth grade in 1999. Yeah. And it was probably around that time that I was getting old enough to like go to anime conventions and stuff. And back then there was no like streaming services like Crunchyroll. If you wanted to watch anime, you either needed like bootleg DVDs, <sighs> download horrible quality copies from the internet if, if you could. Like honestly, in 99, 2000, you wouldn't even be able to do that really. But mostly you had to just go to and like hunt down DVDs. And often what you would do is make like a list of some movies that you thought seemed pretty cool and mm-hmm. either go to like an anime convention and see if you can get some deals on them or go to like, uh, I'm, I'm from, I'm Canadian. It'll go to like downtown Toronto and the HMV down there would have like this like little eight foot anime section. Yeah. And every so often you'd find some gems there. And perfect blue, I actually think was one of the movies I just bought at that HMV because I, I'd heard some good things about it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I remember liking it quite a lot. Uh, so when you said you were covering that, I was like, oh, yeah, I feel like I could talk about that movie. But I hadn't seen it in probably 20 years. So right. I, I bought it again on iTunes and then rewatched it with my girlfriend um, a couple days ago, actually, like Monday, Tuesday of last week, maybe a week ago. Nice. So, uh, Chris, how old yes, are you, buddy? Sir. I'm you're, you're 28. I almost 20, forgot how old I was. 28? Okay, so you're, yeah. you're older than I am or probably a couple months. Who knows? Yeah, so then I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, you brought me up to a thing where I really kind of miss it across everything, from music to movies to video games. You were kind of talking about back in the day, you had to have the approach of, like, the internet was not near the tool that it is now, and even to the degree that it was, it took a lot more work and scouring to luckily stumble across, like, a, a, a blog or a a, a a message board or whatever, kind of like game packs or whatever, and be like, what's going on? What's cool? <laughs> but there was something that was kind of amazing that I feel like is lost, and I occasionally try and recapture. Uh, these days, we're back, you know, back when you didn't have the ability to look up everything ad nauseum before you made a decision to purchase it. You would kind of just wing it. You'd look at the box and be like, I don't know, this seems cool. Or you, you heard somebody say, oh, that movie was really cool. You didn't hear anything more than that, but you just kind of decide to take a take a chance take a and just see what happens so every now and then now i'll just i'll either like really loosely hear about a double a game or a indie movie or something and i'll just w- be walking around walmart and, and i'll just pick up a box and look at it and 
either I've heard of it a little bit, but not enough to know anything, and I just take a chance because it sounded moderately cool, or I just look at the box art entirely and be like, ah, screw it, let's see what this is. I've also done that with vinyl, where I just, I'm just i in a vinyl shop, and I'm like, ah, the, the album art looks really cool on this vinyl. <laughs> see, I, I could never do that with vinyl because... I my boss at work listens to a lot of like very aggressive music, so I, I've been listening to it a little bit more because I'm I'm enjoying it. But I, I've noticed that very hardcore punk, they have incredible album covers. Absolutely, they do. It's a genre that I occasionally like myself, but that's just one of those things. I've I, now don't get me wrong. I've had some absolute duds because of yeah. that, but I've also had some absolute bangers that I had no precursor knowledge on, uh-huh. and in those moments where you get something that at the end of it all you just find that you really loved it is when that magic comes back that magic of getting a good find when there was no way to know anything about it and you and your friends are just looking at it and being like Mm -hmm. this looks cool what is it well (laughs) i think interestingly enough this was your first time seeing perfect blue so did you find a dud or did you find magic uh i did find magic i thought it was really good and i had literally no clue what it was about yeah that's a good way to go into this movie it is yeah which helps because of its age you know i think it's a movie that is is i could i could imagine why it would be highly regarded uh, but it's something that i think is out of the anime zeitgeist as anime is in a lot different of a place now um uh, i would i would consider i mean there are still movies like this being made i don't want to act like there isn't but there's a certain style to this movie uh and a groundedness to this that i don't think you see as often in modern anime um and I really appreciated that aspect, so I could see why people wouldn't be as high on it now. Um, and that means going through and really never hearing anybody talk about it outside of the few times Chris has mentioned wanting to watch it and that he's heard it's good. That's about all I had to go on. I think uh, a good chunk of that might even be that the the style of animation, like the mm-hmm. 100% hand-drawn animation is something that you really don't see very much in modern anime anymore. Yeah. In fact, modern Dude. anime, it's, it's more often to be, if not 100%, then like 80% computer animation yeah. with like a little bit of hand-drawn stuff here and there. Whereas this, like you can tell even just looking at any frame of it, like you, you can see the entire background was is a hand-drawn painting. Like it all looks like a frame of a, of a comic book. And all the animation it has this... Un, um, unpolished look to it that it, like it has all the little imperfections the way everything moves where it, it's clearly very yeah. well done and the artistry is like fantastic for the, the vast majority if not all of it but it does it looks a lot different from what you would see a modern anime this sort of was one of the last movies yeah. of the the tradition that was kind of like the era that i grew up watching animes for which i would say the kind of big three back in like the early 90s were akira ghost of in course. the shell and ninja scroll like those were usually yes. the three that if you were like in fifth grade fourth grade and like someone's older brother had some anime it was usually those three movies and yeah you like they i mean all three of them really are very inappropriate for like a little kid to see but you know it was the 90s so people yeah, that's exactly what i was doing it was, uh, it's, it's funny you like bring up mortal Kombat. you know <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's funny you bring up Ghost in the Shell because from a sheer animation style, I definitely get a lot of Ghost in the Shell vibes to the way this was animated. And I don't, I don't actually know the group behind this animation. Of course, I just finished watching it 30 minutes ago, 45 minutes ago. So it's not like I had any time to look that stuff up, which I'm kind of, it's nice. Like I said, it's nice to marinate on it with very little information as to who was behind it and not get caught up in anything other than the sheer artistry behind the idea and the execution. Um, but yeah, you know, going back to what you were talking about with the animation is you're right in that it it's not clean and like the actual uh the the drawing of the animations but then actually the movement of the animation even has this charm that i think is really prevalent throughout it because of that there's something about computer animation that i think tends to be a little harder to capture the soul as well and i know that sounds like a weird way to say i just can't think of a better word but i think there's a life there's a livelihood to hand-drawn animation that I don't know if it becomes if if it comes from the imperfection of you know animating by hand or what but I find that hand animated things tend to click with me a lot better and I'm much more standoffish to things that are either computer animated with the intention of trying to look hand animated Mm -hmm. um i i find that's the thing that bothers me the most i also have a little bit of a hard time getting into fully 3d animated shows that like a good example is like ozian or knights of sedonia and a couple of other of the more modern netflix series where they use full-on 3d animation Mm -hmm. um i have a hard time getting into those too not quite as bad as the ones that are kind of trying to feign hand-drawn animation but yeah there's something about that time period where maybe it's nostalgia maybe it's just my love for animation i don't know because there are clearly 3d movies like chris and i did an episode not long back on spider-man into the spider-verse and i find that a lot of what i'm talking about with hand-drawn animation is present in that but now i'm starting to think about it i wonder if it's more of due to the fact that this is a movie and one of the things that happens, I think, with anime is production time catches you. And a good example of that is Dragon Ball Super has been criticized heavily for its animation uh, inconsistencies, primarily because of trying to meet deadlines. So you have very rushed key or uh, frames in between keyframes, and they'll just look really sloppy. Yeah, and that's actually a thing that Attack on Titan this season has been criticized quite a lot because not only is it a new animation studio that's that's making Attack on Titan, but apparently they wanted <coughs> a year to finish this season, and like the uh, the studio behind it, I think Production IG was just like, yeah, you've got six months. So, <laughs> like, I, I think that. Um, production timelines can dramatically affect tv anime i think much more so than anime I guess, feature cinema. film yeah feature films because mm-hmm. they they would have more time to work on it but the the crazy thing about this style of like the perfect tying it back to perfect blue perfect blue style of animation is physically not possible anymore like, and I mean, that, that seems kind of crazy. It's like, well, what's stopping people from drawing it? It's like the systems that they have in place in order to do huh. a full cell animated anime don't exist in Japan anymore because it's far too expensive for the returns that you'd get on it. So they've all like every studio is converted to primarily 3D animation. And yes. it's why past like the early 2000s at the very latest you just don't see stuff that looks like this anymore 
Yeah. And I think the reason that we think of the early 2000s is because often we wouldn't get these things come stateside until far down the road. So, you know, we're looking at Dragon Ball Z as the example of what anime is supposed to look like. A lot of kids did here, and nobody's really thinking that Dragon Ball Z is already, you know, seven to ten years old in Japan by the time that we're looking at it. We're very behind at at that time period when digital distribution wasn't, you know, possible through Internet to the same degree. You have that. You get these big jumps where it takes forever for these things to get here, for someone to choose to do the work, and then depending on how they're going to choose to go about doing uh, the dub and or subs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, one of the things that used to be a big deal back in the day is Japan clearly lets different subject matter go through, mm. and when it would come stateside, often if it was going to be dubbed, it would be completely animated over, kind of like the, uh, the classic... Um, Kaiba and in, in Yu-Gi-Oh, they bust in with guns and they just completely drew the guns out of his hands. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then, uh, of course, uh, yeah, I think I, it's, it may not be Luffy. I, I'm not a big One Piece fan, but there was a character in One Piece, of course, that has a sucker because it was a cigarette, and they were like, "We don't need kids." Of course, this is a kids' show because it's animated. You know, the '90s were a wild time in America for animation. Well, it's funny. Um, like my girlfriend and I have been working our way through the original Full Metal Alchemist because I've actually <laughs> never seen the original Full Metal Alchemist, and she's never seen Brotherhood. And ah. um, Lieutenant Havoc has a cigarette in his mouth at all times. Like there, yep. there's like not a scene that he's in where he at doesn't all have a smoke. times. It doesn't ever yep. seem like it's lit. It's just like he's he's. It's just there. It. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's the thing that I think happens. Like when you look at Perfect Blue and you look at some of the subject matter they choose to do, it's and like there. definitely things like what we'll get into in the long run, like the rape scene. You have a lot of things that I don't think would have been able to survive um, it being English dubbed. I think the <clears throat> only way this movie releases here and keeps itself true to what it was trying to be is to just sub it. And I am it, one of the weird people dubbed. where. Oh, what? Yeah. The, why? If it's dubbed, why in the hell did I watch the subbed one? Well, I mean, sometimes the sub version <laughs> is better, but um, no, there actually is a dub. And um, I had to check a specific thing that we can talk about at the very end of the movie. But there is a key difference between the subtitled version and the dubbed version that I think uh-huh. it will be worth pointing you, out. You may be proving my point for me here and that English dubs tend to have a hard time because they try to still match lip movements. They have a hard time trying to find a way to fit yeah. the subject matter in a way that's as poignant, uh, and that's been a problem across a lot of things, and sometimes that results in changed things. But that's interesting because, you know, while we're talking about the animation style, I really enjoyed it, but I noticed that I really could only enjoy it to its fullest because, of course, I was watching the subdiversion, and a lot of information is given through dialogue. <clears throat> so I feel like there's a strong need to focus on dialogue and I it, it's it might be a, a localized problem with myself but I find that even though I can still see the frame in my peripheral of what's going on when I'm looking at the subtitles and trying to keep up with the plot of which this movie tends to have a, a, a considerable amount of dialogue um, yeah, it was unfortunate <laughs> exactly there was times where I felt like I'm looking and I feel like I'm missing out on some finer details of the animation Mm -hmm. by having to focus on the subs. And that's kind of like the, the tell of two things. It's like, you know, as a human, we can look at something and hear something and that's great, but we can't focus on two different things quite as easily from a sheer visual standpoint. So while I don't feel like I necessarily missed 
the entire movie. I just feel like there's <laughs> nuance and detail to the animation whenever there were uh, plot heavy scenes going on dialogue wise. That was unfortunate. Like I was really engrossed in the movie, but I kept wanting to be like, I really want to look more at this animation and it only lets me do it in scenes where it's more or less quiet. There's a strong argument for dubs because of that. Because as much as as much as like there's a lot of anime purists that just be like, yeah, if you're not watching it in Japanese, you're not watching the actual movie. Ultimately, if you're watching a subtitled version, then you're still also not really watching the actual movie because you're you're watching someone's translation. It's very rare that like the the screenwriter of the anime it is going to is speak the translator. Per- yeah, is going to speak perfect yeah. English and be able to one to one translate the entire thing. Generally, a one to one translation will be totally borked and almost still like un- not not understandable because yeah. Japan doesn't directly translate into English. Yep. And like concepts to, are different and words that they go to say it's like oh well this is a concept that makes sense to the Japanese but it doesn't mm. it's not a saying or a phrase that makes sense to an American. So you have to find the closest match. Yeah, exactly. Or like the way a Japanese sentence is structured if you just translated those words into English and said them it's like okay that <laughs> Like <laughs> that that sounds like like a computer trying to say a thing. It's like, well, it it does to us, but that's because like we don't actually speak Japanese. So there's a lot of like anime purists will be like only a real anime fans <laughs> just learn how to speak Japanese and it's like, okay, well, uh, let's pump the brakes there, okay? Cuz if you're saying real real anime fans only watch it in Japanese with subtitles, but then there's another group <laughs> that's like real anime fans flat out learn Japanese. It's, at a certain point like watch the movie how you enjoy it. The what the what sure. I'll usually go by is all fire a movie up or a show up dubbed and if the dub seems wrong or not wrong is in like the translations weird or the syncing's bad because i don't i don't ever expect the syncing to be dead on but if it's like the voices don't seem to fit the characters and then i flip over to japanese and it's significantly better i was like okay i'll I'll take the hit and be able to focus on the subtitles instead of the animation because i can't stand these people's voices but speaking on that point like full metal alchemist i think the the english double full metal alchemist is great i I don't really see any point at all to watch (laughs) the japanese version unless you just want to hear the japanese voice actors because i think everyone there does a good job and dragon ball is so silly that i think it works in english just fine but, yeah, um, I agree. Things like I think Death Note, though, I think sounds horrible in English. Like I, I, I will argue against the English dub of Death Note, like tooth and nail. <laughs> That's interesting because I've, of course, I've never watched the sub of Death Note, but it's one of my favorite animes as a result. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. good. Uh, I mean, I, I, when I say as a result, I mean, of course, not knowing anything else, I feel like uh, everybody's voice is pretty much spot on, and it feels accurate to what I'd want. Um, you know. W- dubs are also they get to a weird thing where i don't think it plays as big of a part in perfect blue which i think of you know the way that this movie kind of works and i kind of put it in here is that most of what this is doing this movie wise is doing is things that could have been done via film no problem but where they do sometimes, of course, lean into what animation has to offer is in things like uh, the ability for her to see herself easily and the cost effects that go down with trying to pull that off in a, a you know, a, a mid to late 90s uh, film. It was very hard to do, very expensive. It's almost more efficient to actually do it through animation. But I noticed that sometimes what I've run into is that. A, a good example is actually near Automata. We were talking about it earlier. If you play the game in Japanese, which I did out of sheer curiosity, um, the pod doesn't sound like a robot at all uh, oh, really? in Japanese. <laughs> he just has a Japanese voice, and he just sounds like a mean guy. And 
I that's one of those things where I find that whoever handled the dub for that game decided like, well, this is a piece of tech and the delivery and whatnot kind of gives a stoicness that makes sense for a tech like voice. So not saying that it has to be that, but I find that sometimes I find myself more connected with certain ideas that the English dub tries to take on because of the nature of what they thought a better fit for the thing. So it does come down to technically preferring someone else's vision of someone else's art, but it's kind of like you mentioned, it's more in like, how do you translate this over? And you can do it with just a voice, but if you can't find the perfect voice that you feel like matches the original intention, then you can change that to a small degree and kind of let it roll. Um, And that's why I'm very curious to kind of go back and, and watch this movie again with the dub primarily to see the difference that you're going to end up that we'll expound on but also just to see what it's like to be able to watch it with more focus on the um actual animation but also to see how much the english dub actually matches up with the subtitles that i read because you know oftentimes subtitles are still not the same like you said because there's work with trying to sync you'll still get a fairly different bit of dialogue no, the also subject matter on, could end up, but you know, depending on the releasing company, like the publishing company of the whatever, however you're buying it, Blu-ray, um, DVD, you might have different subtitle translations as well. So there could That's be true. two versions of the movie out there where they like if you were saying matching up subs to the dub, sometimes you'd have to match up subs to subs. Because every so often it's like someone does a new translation and it's like, okay, yeah. there's sentences that are worded quite differently here. And like yeah. the, the key things will be the same, like character names and stuff like that. Yeah, but, uh, it's a problem in gaming too. Uh, you know, the, the port of Final Fantasy 4, if I'm not mistaken, there's a phone port. Maybe it's Final Fantasy, it's not... Uh, four, four and six both have phone ports. Uh, four, the, they have four, completely the different translations correct see i'm not the translation i'm not sure about with six but the big thing with six is that the art style is way different and the phone and uh, the steam ports are actually the same for both of them are um for four it's like polygonal like it's it looks like a ps1 game because i think i think it was like originally on nintendo ds and they totally redid the visuals and it looks it looks terrible like the i kind of don't mind the the newer like the cleaned up version of final fantasy six i don't think it looks very good and i wish they did something differently with it but the best version of four is actually the playstation portable version they did a remaster on psp so if anyone here wants to play final fantasy four that's the one to go with there you go all right didn't mean to get off on that sorry chris that's okay um i also really liked the movie (laughs) are are we going through the movie sequentially at all or should i talk about that difference in the translation no i mean we're just we're just gonna have a conversation about the movie in general so we can talk about it right now might as well so the thing in the translation i guess like skipping ahead like spoilers for the movie in case anyone's listening to this (laughs) podcast on perfect blue who hasn't seen perfect blue um so at the end of the movie uh, the where the orderly at the nursing home kind of says like hey like are you like a Mima lookalike or she's a Mima impersonator and she says no it's the real me and like that's yeah. kind of the last line of the movie in the Japanese version that's Rumi's voice actress that says it and really? in the English version it's it's Mima so it's like is the, at the end of the Japanese one are they trying to imply that like oh it might be Mima who's in the nursing home seeing Rumi but it's actually Rumi that's like visiting and leaving or, or the other right. way around. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't pick up on the voice, I guess because it's one of those things where I was 
so focused on just reading that I didn't often pay attention to the voice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but that's a that's a cool feature. I mean, that's a cool little idea, and I'm sure that was clearly done on purpose. Uh, that's probably one of those examples of someone looking at it, seeing that, and being like, "Oh, it's just you know, it, it's probably an example of someone just being on paper looking at the translation and being like, "Oh, this is supposed to be Mina," but they didn't look at the the voice direction. That's cool. That's a small little detail. That's pretty cool. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it keeps the the ambiguous nature of the of the movie and the ending. I think, I, although, like, you got to wonder, like, does that kind of hammer it home, and does it make it pretty clear that whoever the English voice director was effectively changed the ending of the movie, or like, I don't know, because it's like I almost think it kind of works better. The story kind of works better if it is Mima at the end, like as opposed to that. being Rumi. So I, I don't know. I I agree as well. So that's interesting. If it was a artistic choice which I don't think should have happened necessarily, but if it was an artistic choice from the English person, that's, yeah, because of, again, since I didn't notice it, I thought at the end that it was Mima, Mima and I was like, okay, yeah, this is, uh, this feels like the right wrap up for this. But, yeah. when you have the vagueness of doing the voice actor switch up, hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that leads into a conversation of who did you think came out in the end because now that i guess i wouldn't have even asked that question without that bit of knowledge ironically because i thought it was a pretty straightforward ending until you said that but <laughs> <laughs> and i know you watched the sub one the same one as me <laughs> yeah no i, I watched it sub. yeah mark what did you think i guess and having that knowledge do you have an opinion I mean, on who it was honestly like had, had i not been doing some research afterwards i probably wouldn't have caught that myself uh, yeah. so i just thought it was mima at the end and i do think that the story works better if it is because I, I i as much as i do often like the oh like this is kind of an ambiguous ending and like you're left to draw your own conclusions yeah. i think that there's a certain level of like when you make things too ambiguous and too much like there is actually like zero answer and you can't actually put the pieces together that there's an element of like okay like this it's kind of like are you just being artistic for the sake of being able to say like oh yeah you can't even figure out what the ending to my movie was it's like well i don't know is that is that because you're so deep or that the storytelling's bad because like yeah (laughs) you you can kind of make the argument in either direction it's it's one of the reasons why people often are totally in love with christopher nolan or they hate him like right inception probably being like the the biggest the easiest example of like well the the, t- the top swivels a bit at the end so was it all a dream it's like eh, i don't even think nolan knows to be honest <laughs> like I, I i like the guy i think he's got a lot of really good movies but i think uh sometimes uh sometimes your own desire to be artistically ambiguous can uh can hurt the film more than mm. help it and i think that if the intention was to not make it roomy for sure yeah but make it so that it's like oh let's make the audience think that it actually might be i think that th- there's an argument to be made that maybe if the english voice director just said hey let's let's pump the brakes on that one last little twist because it's a little silly i i think i'd actually kind of be inclined to agree with him yeah yeah no i definitely agree with it whether or not i think he should have been able to change it but that's just one of those weird you know translation things and and how that stuff goes and I think as long as it's a good faith translation, I tend to not mind the idea of dubs. I think where a lot of people come up in arms is the idea that dubs 
get to a point where they run through a new group and they'll be like, well, what they're talking about is considered taboo in America, so we're just going to completely kill it. Well, I don't think that that's necessarily a good idea. I think that sometimes what you do is you use media to discuss taboo things and give people new perspectives on it. You don't just completely make it disappear because then when you talk about the movie or, or game or whatever it is, you're talking about two very different things. I don't necessarily know that that's the case with this. I don't think that the choice is that big of a change up. I do think it's like you said, it's more of a, do you want to leave this ambiguous uh, when, when we already have a, a movie full of ambiguity or do you want to finally wrap all this ambiguity up with something that feels deliberate and, and like you said to the story actually feels like a, an ending and not just a, uh, is it actually roomy? Find out on the next episode of Perfect Blue. <laughs> yeah. I I don't necessarily think that it helps or hurts the ending in any serious way. And I think if it did, it would it would kind of be a larger conversation. Yeah. But I I think like you kind of hit the nail on the head that like it's a movie that's already full of ambiguity. And even the actual ending itself, you could without that change of voice actress, you could still say, is this actually happening? And did yes, did mm-hmm. Mima like was it Mima that got killed by the truck at the end? There did he she actually like knock Rumi out of the way successfully? Has she been dead? since like like there's there's plenty of ways you can interpret the film and i don't think you needed that extra little bit in order to hammer home like oh yeah by the way it's an ambiguous movie it's like no no no, there's already enough that we can dig into here we don't need any more and i think that it if anything it just makes it so that if you did want to interpret it in a way with a more clean ending then i think that that makes it a little easier to do that what i find interesting now that knowing that is it makes me wonder if we were deliberately not shown any of uh mima before as in like her pop star phase you know because it could almost be a reference back to where like the quote-unquote old mima the pop idol one like survived or like ended up winning out in the end because i think a lot of this movie is a battle between herself and herself while there's also this kind of conspiracy going on around her so it almost makes me wonder if maybe the reason that Rima sounded the way she did was because that was the way that old Mima sounded. So she had adopted that. And that's why maybe old old Mima was the one who won out in the end, the one who was a pop idol and wanted that life. So her, her voice kind of transitioned back. I guess that could be almost an interesting touchstone there. I don't know if we really get much detail that way. And I'm just talking out of my ass, but well, yeah, but like he mentioned, or I guess like we've all mentioned now, when you have all the ambiguity that this movie kind of throws at you, and again, on purpose, it's, it's trying to keep you on your toes, never quite comfortable enough with a single thought to make you ever actually land on understanding where you're at in the film until the end. So going back to Mark's point on that, letting the end be a little more clean while still having all the ambiguity that the movie sets up about whether this is even actually happening does help give you give the viewer a kind of pause you still have your own questions from the rest of the movie but it doesn't suddenly stack up and it ends up acting as something that is easier to kind of latch onto and be like okay let's just you know this gives me time to process everything else we don't need the extra but you know like you mentioned there's so much stuff going on that talking out of your ass is almost like par for the course when you're (laughs) when you're talking about this movie because of the fact that the movie doesn't want you to establish a timeline it doesn't want you to know what's happening and when and how and why it's 
you know, my wife was watching with me and she's, she said she wasn't going to because she doesn't like the idea of having to read. And I don't know that she was reading. I think she was more just like watching and seeing if she could interpret it <laughs> completely visually. Got yeah. Which, club scene. It was like, okay, I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and I, and I, I'm going, I'm going to ask her because I think when you look at this movie from the aspect of, you know, uh, typically what they'll say whenever you're doing animation, right, uh, is that the idea behind using the expressiveness of animation is that uh, you're supposed to be able to kind of tell the story without any audio needed. And that's like a, of course, that doesn't mean it has to be a hallmark rule, but there is an animator who said like, you know, if you're doing animation right, you should be able to kill the sound and still have an idea of what's happening just based off of the expressiveness of your characters and the animation within. But um, I'd be curious to see what she gleamed from either a little bit of reading or no reading and just kind of visually playing it out because does this movie still feel like a identity crisis and disassociation and whatnot when you don't actually get dialogue like you know if, if you're just basically watching a silent film how does this read out of course since i didn't do that i can't quite pull from what that must feel like but it makes you wonder you know how much of the visual language language goes to set a tone uh, on its own how much of the visual language is relying on the the actual dialogue whether you're hearing it or reading it and how much of it is like music as well to set the tone and kind of get you a final product of what your mind ends up grasping onto and how much of it is just things coming together or things standing out on their own because you know you mentioned that Rumi is never really we don't see much of we don't see much of any character prior to this oh here we are starting to break away from being a pop star and acting and that could be the start of this personality split and when I was looking at the Rumi thing you know one of the things I really appreciated about the way the movie presented it is I never actually thought that it was roomy even though once it showed her for that split second and actually what it was is when she's driving in the car and she goes you don't look so good i'm going to take you back to mima's room yeah i said wait a minute and then it kind of started falling in on me like you know she has been really upset with the way that mima's image has been changing and she's been like locked on to being a pop star there's the discussion between her and the uh, the male agent about how she hasn't been a a working pop star in a long time and times are different so you get this kind of feeling of like is she you know is all of this partially her living vicariously through the image and the persona of mima that she wants to be part of uh and then to that degree, why is Mima seeing her as herself and not as Rumi? And I think like, I think Chris, it might've been you. I feel like regardless of what this movie's doing, I think it's a mixed tale. I think that the movie tries to at least somewhat spell it out that all along it's been Rumi, but there's also this de- de- degree that even if we look at Mima as a real person throughout all this and all of what's happening within her primary life of once being a pop star and now moving to an actress is real she's questioning it all due to what I think the end of the movie kind of spells out as Rumi being the one who was involved in creating and typing out all the Mima's room stuff. And I think Mima's own self-consciousness about what was going on in her career was actually building up and that she was able to project that onto Rumi. So when she's seeing Rumi pretend to be her, she can kind of put it as herself because in a way she is splitting herself up. I was trying to figure out the way for those things to kind of come together, but I'm still 
I'm still I'm not gonna say stuck. I'm just still pondering on how all that works out within this movie. Do either either of you have thoughts on that? I I think that definitely tough to ignore that Mima is clearly having severe psychological issues, Mm -hmm. um, mostly geared around what she starts having to do for her acting career. And there's Mm -hmm. actually like a line in the movie, or at least like in the translation that I saw, where when the writer or is it the writer or the agent is trying to sell her the rape scene and say, yeah, like it's a pivotal moment. Like her, her personality entirely changes after she's raped in this strip club. And that sets up the whole like second half of the show. And like, it's basically like, it's the, the writer of the movie talking like the movie that we're watching talking to us and saying yeah. this is like the moment where like her personality breaks and she has that moment in in her room like her actual room not the Mima's room room where she like it's just after she filmed that rape scene and it seems like she's totally fine and she goes home and like the the agent's like hey why don't we take you up for some food and she's like yeah that would be great and she gets home looks at her fish and sees them dead yeah. Even though they're they're kind of not dead, she was just like seeing them as dead, and then flips out, like tears tears apart her room and starts like throwing things around, starts crying on the bed, and from that point forward, I think she has trouble reconciling the the Mima who's going to be a famous actress with the Mima who was an innocent pop star and who she actually is. So it's almost right. like. There's three things going on that she feels like she doesn't know exactly which one is the real her. And she's got this other person who turns out to be Rumi that's that's running this website called Mima's Room who seems to know shockingly specific details about things like what she's done with her day. Yeah. And actually what's funny is if, like rewatching the movie you look at that and it's like okay the, those were always situations where Rumi was around so mm-hmm. she would know those details would um but yeah, no, so I think that it's a mix of Rumi. You know, like, I don't think she's seeing Rumi like like running around the hallways and chasing her, thinking Rumi's her in like that little pop star outfit, like floating, except for at the end when that actually is what's happening. I think it's it's her own mind is having serious issues dealing with everything, and mm-hmm. she's she's slipping in and out of dreams and having trouble separating her work like the the work as an actress from her real life and right then once people start dying it, it probably makes things even more difficult for her. It, in a lot of ways i don't know if you've seen the movie enemy mark have you seen that movie with jake Gyllenhaal? no actually i haven't that's uh dennis villeneuve's though isn't it yes yes, yes. well i'll be vague but we did an episode on it and i think that this movie kind of plays out in the same way where there's one thing that we're following that's happening in uh, let's call it another reality to kind of the side story that's also happening so to me the main movie is um mima um, fighting inside her head of who she really wants to be and we're seeing that playing out in like dreamlike scenarios that's why when a lot of this stuff happens we see her wake up but then I think in the real world outside of that psychosis where Rumi and her stalker are doing all this stuff. And I think a big thing is with the Mima's room stuff, you kind of see her almost start to, that's kind of when you see her start to have the kind of um, dual personalities almost a little bit and go a little bit more crazy. Um, so that's just kind of where I took it as it's it's one story we're seeing, but the main story is the side plot until they come together pretty violently mm. at the at the end well 
Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, one of the things that kind of got me too is I noticed that it was the more and more she was getting into the roomie's room thing. Mima's room. Mima's room. Thank you. Um, but we were getting, you know, we're kind of in the movie and we're not kind of like Mark mentioned, you have the scene with the rape scene that you clearly see even while she's recording it kind of starts to manifest itself as she starts to like scan the ceiling and then move around and kind of looks dead in her eyes. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love the detail of the fish being dead, even though they weren't. It's like it was her projecting how she felt onto the fish and then it kind of broke her enough to let her kind of work through that. Uh, And then, because I love that as you see her flop down onto her bed and everything, you see the fish in the background for like a split second swimming. I love that little detail and I'm glad there wasn't a lot of dialogue right there to where I would have missed that visually um but one of the things that started getting to me as i was watching it too is like you mentioned i think she like essentially personifies and gives a a mental body to the version of mima that she's reading about and she's kind of giving it an actual personality and this ties in with a lot of the cool like little fourth wall breaking things that mark mentioned where it's like the film that she's working on or the series that she's working on within her uh within all of this is also tying in directly with what we're seeing in the movie, like little spots where she's in there and we see the same scene happen almost twice, mm-hmm. but the dialogue changes, you know, where she's sitting in there and she's saying like, Oh, uh, the, she believes that she's a, an actress called Mima or whatever. And this is all just part of a drama in her head. And then it cuts to the exact same scene, but with the fake names of the character of the movie or series that she's playing in. Um, those little scenes were cool, but one of the things that started getting me and kind of making me be like, okay, yeah, this is more of her projecting. It's not that it's actually, like Mark mentioned, it's not Rumi chasing her or her chasing Rumi dressed up as herself. It's more that she projects that onto this version of her. And there's a scene where I was curious to what you guys thought because the way I kind of picked it up is that as Rumi starts to realize that the, the Mima's room site is kind of breaking her down is she playing into that and making her question her own self or was this all within her head and the scene i'm thinking about is when she acts as the pizza delivery guy for the photographer that made her strip uh, and do the thing yeah oh say best scene in the movie that part was awesome (laughs) yeah but you know when she does that um as she's reading it might be before we see that but as she's reading she gets onto the computer she's reading mima's room and it's like um I went to this place today and I shopped the sales and then you see her walk out with a bag in yeah. her like thing. Then the next morning you see, or then you see her wearing the clothes while she's killing the photographer and the hat comes off and you see his Mima. But then the next morning when she wakes up and thinks it, what didn't actually happen. And then she goes to her closet and picks it up and looks at that. Do you think that the, her looking at the bag of clothes and seeing that and then kind of imagining the killing, was that actually her imagining the killing? Was that us watching Rumi kill and she was kind of after she finds the bag it's kind of tying into herself or do you think that this is Rumi seeing the ability to make Mima believe things that she types in because the line that Mima says that kind of got me was oh I guess I went to blah 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 today like she didn't know she did it yeah and I think that the and then Rumi could have planted the clothes in the closet And I think that's obviously what did happen, but I think that it's the, the ambiguity of exactly how Mima's experiencing it. And because of all the other things going on with her and how kind of, are we allowed to swear here? 
Yeah. So oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. How kind of fucked up she's feeling um, really kind of makes hammers home that if she's like, oh, I read that thing that I went shopping there, but this this blog is right about so much about what I do. I don't remember doing that. That it has guy, to be This right. guy died, and then there's this bag in here with these buddy clothes. Maybe I did do this, and I'm just not remembering it. And mm-hmm. because yeah. of what we see her going through, it even, like, to the audience, like, I mean, even for me, I was like, oh, okay, so, like, Rumi's just been killing people like that. Like, I, I was pretty much on board with her being the killer at that point. I didn't really yeah. think there was much more to it than that. But then, well, like, yeah, uh, and, and killing, I think they twisted in a way that makes narrative sense and isn't too much of a jump either. Yeah, mm-hmm. where um, it's a, the the tricky thing about like the Shyamalan type twist is like, at certain points, it's like, okay, like, were, were you really in rural Pennsylvania and everything around you was just fine? You just thought you were in the 1700s, like, like yeah. village. <laughs> Whereas, like, at a certain point, it's like ridiculous. But <laughs> like, I don't know. I thought this movie did that quite well. But yeah, yeah, that's I agree. that's the thing with plot twists, is especially in like writing, you you need to seed it, otherwise it doesn't make sense. You know, I don't think yeah. M Night does a very good job of that, but this movie is seeding it just from the colors in the background, you know what I mean? Yeah. The color if you watch the movie, the color red tells you everything you need to know about the movie. True. Um so that to me is why this twist as I didn't see it coming literally until I was like, oh, that Mima got fat. <laughs> right at the oh, end. Oh, you didn't even know until after. No, okay. I didn't pick it yeah, up until I, then. I Yeah, because I, I kind of caught on in the car when she says, oh, you don't look well. I'm going to take you back to Mima's room. I, I said, wait a minute. See, I didn't. <laughs> I thought that was weird, but I also thought that she knew about the blog for some reason. Um, she did. She did because she, she told Mima that she shouldn't be reading it. Right. Which was, you know, kind of the interesting way to throw the scent off of her trail, even though I don't think it needed to be. Mima's so clearly fucked in the head with everything going on. I don't, she would have never thought that it would have been Rumi to begin with. No, exactly. From my perspective. So I, I literally did not catch it until then, but wow so when you kind of saw the the, the change we're like whoa yeah i mean dude when wait see now i'm wondering i feel like because i remember thinking i remember believing that she stabbed the photographer until like 20 minutes later maybe and then be like oh yeah, okay that sounds about right yeah yeah that sounds about All right. right it might not have been 20 minutes though one thing that's actually kind of nuts about this movie is it's it's shockingly short yeah like, no, it's the very amount of cool. content this guy packs feels, into 80 minutes is insane yeah yeah like, yeah it feels very long in a good way it feels long in a way where you're like you feel like there's with all the information i've been given i've had to have at least watched a two-hour movie just now yeah. but then you look and you're like oh no, it's it's just eighty minutes. <laughs> yeah. Content rich is how I would describe it. <laughs> yeah, yes. or content. It doesn't feel minutes. long, rather than you feel like what you're getting within the time that you have is so significant. Significant, yeah. That it's just it's it's hard to think that it could be done in eighty minutes. I think it shows a lot about problems with some modern movies in being slightly excessive. Hey, man. I want to watch the Avengers fight for three hours. I get it. <laughs> totally go, go for it. <laughs> I would rather watch. I would rather watch Rumi and Mima fight for three and a half minutes, <laughs> and have a great narrative payoff within that. <laughs> personally, but you know, well, even as as much as like the the big fight in Endgame was very impressive. Like usually when people talk about it, they're they they bring up like three little scenes in it it's like yeah uh, captain america grabbing mjolnir 
the girl fight that usually people say like was kind of cringy because like why are all of a sudden all the girls fighting alone yeah <laughs> no yep. help from anyone else and then so Iron bad. man snap and those that's like the three moments that everyone remembers and all the rest of it is just cg people fighting cg monsters yeah, <laughs> yeah and at that point that, doesn't that mean you could just show those three scenes and essentially have the same thing no don't okay that's just <laughs> the the point well, I, I think you, you do have to connect those in a, yeah. in a logical. Of course, way, you have to have uh, some interstitials, but you don't have to have as much as that movie had. Yes, and, you do. And don't wrong. Yes, I do. enjoyed that movie. Yes, you do. I'm just saying. People, when they talk about these movies, which we're off on a tangent, but whatever, when they talk about these movies, forget that the appeal should just be, oh look, that's Iron Man. He's doing cool stuff. That's it. Like I, I don't ever. Well, then the movie shouldn't try and do more because that's the moment not trying I mean, to do more. And, and I, I actually think I would argue that the best fight scenes in the MCU are the ones that have more narrative weight than that. Like, no, I uh, don't. I just Bucky mean Iron Man fighting. Uh, Bucky and Steve yeah, fighting Iron Man. At no, for sure. War. My point is more that like people get upset. It's like people will be like, oh well, look at look at like Gangs of New York or something like that. And it's like these are two completely different types of movies that we're talking about here. I'm not saying they that aren't. they shouldn't be connected. I'm saying the spectacle is a lot of the point. That's why a lot of people love them and don't need them sure. to be like Perfect Blue. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. That's true. I just I think that what a lot of people will criticize the more bombastic like spectacle action scenes for is that a lot of it feels like like cinematic junk food like like it is yeah. really sweet and like it does taste good while you're first eating it but then like after a certain time you you like stop eating and then look in the mirror and you're like oh man i'm fat <laughs> <laughs> i that's the thing is i just like to eat um <laughs> i feel that but but i guess i appreciated that in this movie because it does feel and it's a thing i appreciate about an enemy as well i didn't feel like enemy would outstate its welcome it knew what it wanted to do and i feel like it did it very efficiently and Absolutely. that was a big thing i'm glad you brought up enemy because the entire time i was watching this movie i could not stop thinking about enemy see now now i feel like i gotta watch enemy you should watch oh it's, enemy. it's, it's really good yeah, we think it's really good. My dad has tried to watch it four <laughs> times and refuses at this point. He was like, "I'm sorry, Still hates it." I listened to your episode, but I can't watch this movie. <laughs> well, I mean, my my relationship with Villeneuve is interesting because I I liked um, prison, not Prisoner. Sorry, that that one is another one I haven't seen. Um, also oh, good. Forgetting. You should Sicario. watch Prisoners. Sicario. Sicario. I liked a lot. I thought it was incredible. Yeah. Um, I like um, Arrival much less than most people. <laughs> Like that's that's a movie that seems like everyone loves, and I'm just like ah, I don't know. It's okay. Like I I don't <laughs> think it's bad. I think it's like a good movie that I just didn't really like. Like it, it seems like it's good. I can see why people think it's it's well done and like why people enjoyed it. I just didn't really get into it. I was like eh, I don't know. The, like the twist towards the end of that kind of seemed. Uh, that sounds strange. like the way like, that people talk about um, Interstellar for oh, me so good either you either you absolutely love it or you're like i see why people like it but it's not for me like i don't i didn't really care like it, it, it's it's good Interstellar it's, is one that i like aspects of it but i think it's i think there's also elements of it that are highly overrated i honestly think you take matthew mcconaughey's performance out of that movie it drops like 20 percent. like i mean <laughs> I, I think I, he was just really good and compelling and i think that that carried a lot of the weirdness of interstellar for i agree with that that's my same uh, argument with um, the Dark Knight, where I think if you take Joker out of that movie, that movie is actually terrible. So, 
I, I wouldn't go yeah. as far as terrible, but it would but be yeah, a, a lot of it rests on the charisma of the performance. Yeah, yeah. I, I would still argue Batman Begins is the better Batman movie. Yeah, um, I agree. Yep. Dark Knight probably the best be Batman movie in like, general. Crime yeah. drama, but I don't know. I think though, but like going back to Villeneuve though, and I, I really like Blade Runner twenty forty nine a lot. So yeah. like I I like some of his movies. I I think others are like well made, but didn't really like them. So I, I I'm interested to see how I'll react to the other the ones that yeah. I haven't seen. Just a post-mortem, I would love to just hear your thoughts on Enemy in reference to this movie once you get around to it. Uh, but I have a big question I want to ask both of you because sure. as I've gone through, I still can't see an answer. And it doesn't mean that it has to be anything. Why is this movie called Perfect Blue? I, I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> There's a reason. I saw it. Oh, but talk about, so it's co- one that- talk about the color red for a minute and I'll find it because I saw it earlier. Well, well, see, and that's part of what brought the question up is you talked about how throughout the movie, the color red does a lot of telling you what it, it, it picks up the visual language and kind of helps set the tone on what you're witnessing, what's real, what's not real, <clears throat> what is projected to be real. You have a lot of that stuff going on. So, OK. And that's why I find it such an odd thing that it, it was more of a I'm, I'm glad that you're going to look it up. But I guess what I wanted to be sure of is. All three of us coming out of the movie don't feel like we had a, a, a substantial reason as to why it was called Perfect Blue on our own, correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, with a lot of anime titles that seem kind of strange, I just assume it's an odd translation, translation. thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, honestly, one of my favorite anime shows ever, that, granted, it's really weird, so this isn't a hard recommend, but it's called Gurren Logan, and I don't oh, know yeah. what that means at all. <laughs> yeah, no, sounds, nor do I. It sounds like German, but uh, like, I, it I does. don't really know what it actually means. <laughs> so go ahead, Chris. I'm assuming you've pulled it up. Some people say it doesn't have any meaning. Other people say it's like, think about how the sky was a perfect shade of blue at the end of the movie, symbolizing she's broken from her psychosis. Uh, it, 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 it depends. I mean, I see that, but... Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt that in the moment of like, not that the sky was a perfect shade of blue, but that they made it a point to pull up to the sky and sh- and show it when a lot of this movie takes place in the dark and indoors. Yeah, yeah and indoors, it's very closed off and kind of claustrophobic in a lot of ways. So I just read um, Satoshi was asked what the title is, and he says, uh, that's a frequently asked question, and at the time, one I find very difficult to answer. To be honest, I used it because it was the title of the original novel. I presume the words had some significance, but as I changed the story (laughs) and probably the subject as well, I guess the meaning was lost. I can only guess because I didn't read the novel. I simply read through the rough plot, which was described as close to the original score to the original story in the project plan delivered to me. We discussed changing the title, but I like it. It sounds significant and mysterious. It doesn't mean anything. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. I absolutely (laughs) love that. I, I like when people go through and be like, so why is this called this and you're just like honestly i thought it sounded cool yeah <laughs> i did not know that but just for the record when you brought up the thing about the sky my first thought was that sounds like a reach yeah it oh does. it does <laughs> i saw that when i was looking at imdb and i'm like oh come on yeah that that's that that had fan theory written all over it I'm oh like, yeah, well, yeah okay. that's i was like honestly like if you're of the things that you could point out, it's like, well, the sky's blue in one scene. In one <laughs> scene. Yeah, they decided to name the whole movie off like, of that. That's why it's, it's super significant. It's like, and what's the oh. perfect shade of blue? Isn't that like, isn't that Cyan. technically a, a subjective idea? Yes. <laughs> the, the answer would be royal blue. But, uh, <laughs> I, I suppose that's subjective. Uh, I, you know. Um, 
No, I don't know. I just think you, you, the only reason I could even see the sky thing is because I, if I'm not mistaken, that's the only scene where there is no red in the movie. So you could look at it as like, oh, she really did break the psychosis. There's no red. That's the real her. Cut to black. Movie's over. It was very straightforward. You know, I didn't think of that. You might be right. I don't know if it's the only scene with no red, but I think it's probably the most prominent scene with no red. I'm just, I think the only red would have been her lips, which I don't know if that counts. And but. throughout much of the movie, her lips were actually, uh, were red, but throughout, if right there at that part, were her lips not pink? Maybe. That could definitely be it. But that's a lighter shade of red, arguably, so. <laughs> that's also true. So, I mean, she didn't break it's completely from it. She's just kind of, she's, she's handling it better. She's yeah. on meds these days, you know. <laughs> Prozac kicked in. Yeah. <laughs> like lithium or something. <laughs> so, uh, one thing we haven't talked about yet, which uh-huh. I really thought was cool, was the way that they handle, the movie handled transitions between different things. Yeah. And there was a, a literally a ton of them. Uh, one of them, like when she gets the facts at the beginning of the movie uh, and it says traitor, and then she kind of like looks out the window and says, Who are you? And then suddenly she repeats it in basically the same way. But the way that it was subtitled and of course as we see the visual fade in it's like now it's her repeating a line over and over again i thought that was really cool and that was just one of the early examples and it just kept on going <laughs> but yeah there was a there was a bunch of those including the ones like i mentioned from the, the the fourth wall breaking style where it's like it's almost breaking the fourth wall to within the movie itself to break the fourth wall to you the viewer mm-hmm. um but even small stuff like whenever you see the um, Mimania or whatever the guy's name was, uh, whenever he comes up to uh, Mima while she's in the hall, and he like you see him reach his hand out, and then suddenly you see Rumi closing the trunk, and you're like, but you don't see anything besides the trunk closing. You're like, did they just stuff her into a trunk? And then it pulls out. It's like, oh no, it's just Rumi. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of scenes like that, and then there's yeah. him looking at the uh, Cham or Cam or whatever the name of that band is supposed to be, the pop group, yep. I should say. And he's looking at them, and then he's kind of imagining uh, Mima still being part of it. And then we see it transition to her, like she's in between the two of them, and then we see it kind of transition to her sitting uh, in the casting area. It's just stuff like that was really cool and it it was like oh this is like a real cool attention to detail where these transitions are used to somewhat aid in the storytelling and definitely in the delivery of a feeling of vagueness definitely i think the most important thing about the transitions is that from the jump it sets up that you'll never know what's real and what's not in this movie because the movie True. starts yeah. off on the close-up of the Power Rangers, and you're like, oh, okay, this is the movie, and then it pulls out. And I think there was one example, another example of, like, a police siren, you know, and you think, oh, the yeah, cops are going yeah, somewhere, and then it kid. pulls out, and it's a kid. <laughs> kid on a little, like, Tonka, or not, uh, well, what are the, t- not Tonka trucks, what are those things called? Like, the Power Wheels. Uh, yeah, 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 I think that's yeah. exactly it. But, yeah, it, they use it from the beginning to just be like, uh, yeah, you'll never know, and we're never 
gonna be clear about what's what then the the i think the one that caught me off guard the most was when there's like an agent that comes up to her it's like hey have you ever considered modeling and she's like me what and Mm -hmm. then like a second later it pulls out and it's like a scene from the movie they're doing i was like oh (laughs) yeah Yeah. for Uh, a second i was like how's this guy gonna play into it (laughs) yeah see all of those were cool there was one that i really appreciated because i was like i wonder how they actually pulled this off back in the 90s i assume they would have actually had to be like here we want to do this so that means we're gonna have to animate this and then actually go on make it complete and then come back in and then rewind it but there's that part where um you you see the guy talking and this is part of the film thing but it it cuts in on him like you were watching it happen within the world and then suddenly it starts to have like a graininess to it that's like oh this is film and then it keeps pulling back and then suddenly you see it inside the tv frame and it starts to rewind and i thought that was kind of cool because i was looking and i was like i don't know if if for sure in 96 97 whenever this was being technically produced how they would have pulled that off but i like to imagine they had to be like well we've got to complete this animation then go back in and cut it into the rest of this animation so that we can pull this transition off and that's just a good dedication i would agree i would yeah i mean unless do we want to pick out some specific scenes we want to discuss because i we kind of got into my big topic which was the color red so does anyone want to pull out any scenes and kind of talk about them what do you guys think mark do you have anything particular I guess we already talked about the photographer murder scene, and I thought, yeah. I thought that was one of the coolest like horror moments in the movie. Yeah, uh, the ending chase with Rumi and uh, Mima we also kind of touched on, and that um, that I thought was also very well done. How you see the like floating image of Mima kind of bouncing around, chasing after her, like like as if it's no effort at all. But then when it pans past windows and you see the reflection, <laughs> you'll see yeah. Rumi like just like like panting, struggling, she's, like, like, spit coming out of her mouth, and she's sweating and it's like horrifying looking. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there, there was a lot of like just kind of cool action ish scenes in the movie like like spaced out pretty nicely too Mm -hmm. okay uh, so mark to your point right there the the scene where you see the mima that's just running and floating as if she was like a sailor moon character mm -hmm. you see her going and you know you mentioned that you don't necessarily think it's it's us seeing rumi as she's doing you know she's like running around with this version of mima and i don't think so either but the thing that made me stop and question it is when we see mima already know that it's supposed to be Rumi, but she's almost unsure of herself as whether it's Rumi. and then when she's running and we see that reflection look that way i'm like wait a minute so is this whole time is it possible that this could have actually been her seeing Rumi and just projecting and going through and for some reason she had a brief moment of clarity and that kind of i don't want to say muddied the waters with like a negative connotation but it 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 stopped and made me second think whether or not those things were just Mima's psyche running astray or if there were, uh, if it was a mix, like was it sometimes Rumi playing into this and kind of feeding into her psychosis or was the only time that it was actually Rumi right there at the end? It's, I, I, it was I think the only time it was Rumi or at least the, the time in which they were interacting for an extended period of time was the end. Mm-hmm. I think the other times that she was like seeing the, the image of the like uh, pop star Mima ghost, you could say, were, was her having her own identity crisis. Because I think that if Mima or sorry, if Rumi was dressed up in her Mima getup, 
and wouldn't someone say something well yeah or like wouldn't someone say something or wouldn't like what would be the odds of mima just being Rumi? what the fuck (laughs) like like, i mean how would Rumi be that confident that mima is that far gone at that point like so that's true but um then i think though that tying it in that like she was already seeing those apparitions on her own then when she had Rumi dressed up as her chasing her, she was like almost interpreting it as that apparition then chasing her. Is it, that is the way I read it at least. Yeah. yeah. The ghost of pop star past. <laughs> well, I think interestingly, you can kind of make a case that Rumi, cause do so you guys think that Rumi and the stalker were working together? They were right. She, she says something yes. directly Absolutely about it. They were. Yeah. So you can, I can see a scenario where, from the jump they've been setting her up to think that she's going after herself right you know to a degree so here's the thing with the stalker at least the way i took it i'd be curious to see mark too because while i do think that you could classify it as them working together what i actually think was going on is that Rumi knew that this fan was an ultra fan of uh of Mima's and then was kind of using that to her advantage because we see him saying things you think well he's just crazy but you know if you think that Rumi is pretending to be uh, Mima and going through all this and then being like oh I'm the real one and this other one's the fake one then it's actually that the the fan was almost just drawn into something that he wasn't fully aware of and he thought the Mima that he was going after and and that's a scene i want to talk about for a second too it's the only other scene that we haven't brushed against but uh i thought that the idea of the fan kind of giving in and being like no you're not the real mima the real mima is this and she emails me every day i was like oh okay so this is not him being part of the plan from the get-go this is him falling victim to the plan and using his you know obsessiveness for Mima against him because you know we have that scene where he's looking at the Mima's thing and then reading an email that he got from her and you start seeing all of the Mima pictures that he has in his office start talking to him and, and that was kind of part of it for me well and then that scene ends with like a Mima apparition like with his arm oh, with her arms around him and exactly. I kind of I got that as like okay that was Rumi actually in the room with him yeah that's and what like, I was thinking too yeah, and that was when she says, like, you know, what are we going to do about this other uh, Mima? And he's, and he's like, I'll end her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I think that I agree. That was where once we saw Rumi, I was like, oh, I feel like this is what's going on. Uh, but the other scene I wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about yet was the basic, basically a mirror scene where the fan, through one reason or another, be it if we're supposed to believe it was sheer consequence or if it was him acting out what he had seen, but basically the mirroring of the rape scene and something that looked a lot like the set, but not It might've even been the real set just empty, but I thought that was a really weird take on it where he's kind of fighting her in the, in the stage and then pushing her around and then gets her out on the stage where we see her get raped for the purposes of the scene that she's supposed to be filming. But this time it's basically real and everything's basically happening in a very similar way. Mm -hmm. I, that was just like a standout scene to me because it was, it was already uncomfortable kind of watching the fake one happen, but you at least have the comfort of knowing it's fake and that little detail of the actor, whenever he's told he has to get back and hold position that he's like, Hey, I'm really sorry. I like that. Yeah. I like that. And it's like, well, you know that he's, I, I, I thought it was a little weird that directly after that, he's like squeezing her boob. So I was like, I guess they talked about this beforehand and it was all cool. <laughs> it, it is a rape scene. So <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you gotta sell it a little bit. 
bit, but yeah, the the there, fact that those no, were yeah, being an actor in one of those scenes, you've you've got to imagine there's like a degree of hey, like just so you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm we're gonna yeah, it's gonna <laughs> do something I, that I, I want to make sure that you're can, you can do and well, not like, be I'm uncomfortable. Also thinking like I'm thinking of this professionally, so just so you know, like when it's between scenes, I'm gonna be like, hey, look, sorry about this, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. I, I could I could see that being extremely awkward for an actor to have to do yeah so but yeah but seeing that basically same scene play out but with the you know me mania or whatever his name was uh it was just it was a little more bone chilling because it was like watching something happen again and it made me think of the line when again it's that fourth wall breaking moment where you see the doctor being like she's uh she's convinced herself that the rape that happened uh, was all part of this drama that uh this drama series that she imagines herself to be in and it kind of starts to give you like the what's the timeline of things happening here you know it's like you think you have it but i think it's meant to throw you off on purpose you know that's something that I, we were talking about nolan i think he tries to occasionally use um non-linear storytelling with you know multiple storylines you know plot thread a b and c happening in different timelines and then converging them eventually yes um I don't think that's necessarily what this movie was actually trying to do. I'm unsure. I think a rewatch, uh, which I do intend to do with the dub out of curiosity now, might further tell me. But it just made me think of that for a second. I'm like, oh, is this technically saying that it could break the timeline? Kind of like we talked about with Enemy, where it's like, what exactly, when exactly are these things happening? And I think an interesting point there is that if you remember the scene that Mima hits him with a hammer... But then when we see him and the other guy, I don't remember who the other guy was that died, but both of them have their eyes gouged out like the writer and the photographer, mm-hmm. implying that everything happened, but it wasn't Mima. It was the yeah. other one. Yeah. You know what got me is I still felt like Mima, if 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 that whole thing happened at all, yeah, that it could have been Mima. But there was this thing where, did you notice that the fan only had one eye missing? I did not. I, or, I thought it at was at least both. from what I could tell, Mark, you may have a little insight on that. I felt like it was only a single eye. So in the moment, my brain quickly took it as, oh, the agent managed to take down the fan while the fan was taking him down. But then I stopped. Now that you said that, it's starting to kind of hit my head. Like, wait a minute, the 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 fan wasn't the one necessarily gouging people's eyes out. We're led to believe that that was more likely Rumi. Right? Yeah, I, th- I <laughs> thought it was Rumi that just killed them both. Yeah. yeah so or all three of all four of them at well, that yeah, point four. yeah there's four bodies. Uh, by both i meant the uh mimania and the oh the yes agent. yes yeah yeah the, yeah the so i mean found together mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> i don't but, know that just it, it's just interesting to me because it kind of goes back to your timelines thing where at that point you don't i don't even know like what specifically happened when because you see mima hit him and then he's dead a completely different way did was she there was it Rumi there who that, that it's just did, fascinating. did she ever hit him was that all just in her mind exactly was that yeah there's a lot of questions that come along there with there are um for me the scene i, I want to talk about because i actually thought it was the best horror scene in comparison to you mark was the uh when the writer died with the um with yeah, the the radio oh the boom box and the, yeah. I, I went back like i think i rewatched that scene four or five times because i was like i must have missed something because I couldn't figure out what happened because he goes in, he sees the elevator, and then I think he's backing up into the elevator. So you'd imagine that's Rumi there, like, going after him, after distracting him. But, it, like, it didn't... I was very confused. <laughs> but, like, that scene was very tense to me. I really liked watching that. 
Yeah, but in a good way. Like the confusion was added to the tension. Yeah. And like a, I'm, I don't even know. Like, it, could this have been the apparition? And you know, the movie does that thing where it's like, uh, well, the persona can't, you know, can't go out anywhere on its own unless it finds someone to possess. And I was watching <laughs> parts of this movie after that. It's like the movie's constantly trying to shake you up to be like, is that what's actually happening here? Right. And you're you never actually for sure think it's it's one thing or the other you know absolutely um but yeah i think that's about it for me does anyone kind of want to cap off our conversation here with anything else i know i think i've said pretty much everything I, all the thoughts i've wanted to get out about the movie um i can like i want to specifically agree that yes the writer death scene was also super awesome <laughs> yeah. it was um brett how about you you got any closing thoughts on perfect blue two things that just for some reason i felt the need to note sure one was the surprise apple slash mac product placement when it was probably (laughs) dirt cheap to pull that off yeah um could you imagine them making that movie now and being like, please let us use Apple or Mac? <laughs> <laughs> no, because they would just buy an iBuy Power and just move on with their lives. <laughs> yeah, you just go on about your business. Yeah. Have it be a no-name brand computer or whatever, even if you want it to be a real one. Hey, Walmart, let's, <laughs> let's well, do your Walmart thing. PC also, has a 2060. They also had uh, Netscape Navigator in there. That was they the, they did. the first browser I ever used. Yeah. <laughs> yep, they did. Um so th- there's that and then the only other thing that we didn't really talk about that i thought was uh interesting is the scene of it, it's more of just a vibe thing that it was cool because it was unsettling but it made me think of other things um this you know we had like a stretch of like four scenes to where it looked like she kept waking up in the at the exact same day and you even see her kind of question it and because Rumi's like what do you mean it's been a long time i was here yesterday but when she woke up the exact same thing was on the tv uh and all that stuff was going on it kind of gave me like a more sinister eerie vibe of like a groundhog day and then whenever i started thinking that i was like well isn't that kind of just like that happy death day movie that we watched <laughs> i love happy death day yeah, I but I started. I stopped and thought about it. I was like, that's kind of what it makes you think of because it's like you know, it, it. You feel like you're watching her witness the same day over and over again as part of like throwing you further and further into her psychosis, and it's clear that that's what she thinks is going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just a cool little moment that I guess by that point, I think groundhog day would have been out but i don't necessarily think that was yeah 93 i don't think that was the inspiration it was just more that i wonder if anybody who was watching that who happened to watch groundhog day when it first came out was like huh or if that's just a because we've done two movies that have a similar feeling on this show that it's coming to my mind yeah it might be that i'm not entirely sure i didn't notice that um yeah so i i do have one final thought on this movie and this movie to me i was thinking about this at work um if hannah montana was made on this on the current cw it'd be this movie this was it yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) significantly Uh, a significantly lesser version but this is the story they would go with (laughs) yeah the the, the pop star who also has something else on the side yes i've watched it's just being a normal human i've watched their archie the comics show so I know I know what they would do with this. God, isn't that true? I was watching Riverdale because my wife got super into it, and I was like, "This is supposed to be Archie Comics." I like Riverdale. <laughs> oh, I don't have anything it's, against it. It's fun. It's just, but it's, you look at it and you're like, 
boy, this is really running. This is taking an idea and being like, what if we did Archie <laughs> Comics as super serious, dark teenage drama? It's like they, it's nuts. Like they had, a, they were like, oh, well, Supernatural was really popular. So we're going to do that same thing, but with a redhead. Like, we're we're going to do Supernatural, do Sabrina, have? and Teen Wolf all together. <laughs> yes. Just on one show. It's nuts. <laughs> so i guess the last thing we have to do is um we rate our movies out of five stars here so uh why don't we start with mark what did you what would you rate this movie i tend to not like scoring things although five star system i can get on board with more than a hundred point scale or a 10 point scale uh i'd I'd say it's four all right yeah really solid i I don't know that i'd say it's a five if we're likening five stars to perfect but no no i think that it it handles what it's trying to do about as well as i could possibly imagine it doing it like i I don't yeah i don't think there's almost anything you could do to improve this movie so i'll I'll give you some context on our rating scale i gave twilight five stars so (laughs) this this can be literally whatever you want if you think it's a five-star movie hell fucking yeah it is (laughs) Uh, but, I, I don't know. Like I, I'd say that uh, I, I think four is probably a safer bet. Um, that's uh, I would I would want to save my five star for like the 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 one movie where I'd be like, yeah, this is just the movie you need to watch. Like that aliens, is fair. I would give Aliens five stars. All right, hell yeah, uh, Brett. How about you? I'm gonna say, Chris, you've been on a streak lately because. I can't really point to a single thing that I think this movie does wrong. Yeah. And with how efficient its time management is and giving you what you need and making you feel like you watched a complete experience, it almost makes me yearn to have more movies be more respectful of my time. That doesn't mean you can't have slow burns. You know, slow burns exist and can really pull off some cool things, but with how much this movie gives you in a way that doesn't quite feel like a slow burn. It feels like there's always kind of something tantalizing going on. I really appreciate that. So I'm going to say that this is your third week in a row for me of you choosing where you get a five out of five. Cause I, I, I know that, you know, I, I can definitely sympathize with where you're coming from Mark on really wanting to save five out of fives, but I've gotten to the point where if I watch a movie and I look and say, like, you know, I liked it so much that I genuinely want to go sit down and rewatch it. And and I can't think of anything that's made me like, uh. It's one of those where I'm going to give it a five for now. And I'd wonder if when I do rewatch it, if it changes. I'm doing the same with Enemy. I was waiting for my wife. I told her today while we were watching this, <laughs> I wanted to watch Enemy. And I wonder if that strengthens my score, which I have a feeling it will, or if it hurts the score. But we'll definitely see. Because I'm going to watch this dubbed as well. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> um, I actually gave it four stars. And I don't have a good reason. Because <laughs> my, my letterbox, the review I put in is I only do like a couple words just because I like having that. And it's just truly masterful. Four stars. Don't have a good reason. <laughs> I don't know. It was a yeah, great That's movie. weird. Truly masterful. I, I like the brevity. <laughs> well, I, but I, I don't know that that expounds enough. Even if it was just truly masterful, but just lacking something that I can't quantify. 7.8 out of 10, too much Mima. (laughs) Arguably. No, I don't know. There was just parts that I kind of disconnected and looked at my phone, and I feel like if it's a five-star movie, I shouldn't be doing that. So, How in the hell do you look at your phone when you're having to read those subtitles? Because I have severe ADHD and a remote that can rewind the TV. (laughs) It's not great. Man. I like feared writing the few notes that I did because I was like, I got to pause this. 
and I hate that. I really don't like doing that. But I was like, there's no way I can look away for a split second because the moment I do, I won't know. Hada, hada, hada. The only thing I'll know is if they say nani, I'll be like, okay, cool. Somebody said what? <laughs> I think I might have paused once. It was because X or girl needed to pee. <laughs> yeah, I'm just really bad at. I'm just really bad with that. But I, I'm also decent at like I can keep one eye on both, so I'll like look through Twitter and I'm still like kind of watching. But I did have to like rewind a couple times because again, how do you read? You know, I can understand that if you're kind of like watching it out of your peripheral, but at the same time you can hear what's going on i kept thinking of this movie like I, my daughter came in one time and i was like she better not be coming here to be loud because <laughs> i need to pay attention well, that, that's kind of the point i was i'm making is that i wasn't wrapped up entirely enough to stay off my phone so it ended up me having to rewind to see what i was missing you know which was i guess part of my maybe part that's more of a me thing but that was a little bit of where she was it was just didn't hold me we're like truman do you show have we any, watched and I just sure do you have any interest in watching the dub version not really it's pretty yeah, good was just curious not, i wonder if when you have the dub to kind of do everything where you can focus more on the visuals and not having to completely pay attention to the subtitles i'm curious how that's going to change things for me too it's just i I've got had it drilled in my head that you have to watch subs, so I'm not even going to bother. I know it's dumb, and we had you guys had this discussion, but it's just every person I know who watches anime gives me shit. I, That's why I won't uh, I, I won't finish like JoJo because I'm like I'm not oh, watching dude, it dubbed. I don't give a damn. I, I, I you know how many friends I have that watch anime and be like, oh subs are uh, subs are the only way to go. I'm like I don't fucking care. Yeah. I don't have the time or the want. Doesn't mean if it's only available in sub and I really want to watch it, it might get lucky. Like Parasite is a fantastic movie and i'm glad i watched it and i think it totally works as a sub movie partially because it's a it's a slow burner in a lot of ways but i'm not worried about like you know people are like you could be watching dragon ball super right now i'm like yeah but i also grew up hearing goku as a man not as a shrill old japanese woman i cannot watch that show and worry about what's reading you know reading crap while potentially missing fight scenes while trying to do one or the other and then also hearing none of the characters sound like anybody i'm familiar with i just don't care dragon ball i watch almost exclusively dubbed i weird though that you mentioned parasite i i don't think i can watch a live action movie with a dub like unless it's I like didn't think I could, and I was movie. genuinely surprised. So if you've not watched it just out of fear, I would say give it a try. I think you'll well, be uh, no, surprised. No, I've, I've seen the movie. I just watched okay. it subtitled. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think the animation, I, I can get away with a dub a lot easier than I can with live action. Live action, the lip syncing like throws me off way too hard. I'm just like, yeah. okay, I'm just going to watch this. And whatever. Oh, well, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, uh, uh, Parasite clearly doesn't have a dub. <laughs> yeah, they're so, just oh, making I, like, a whole I mean, ass movie. Live action movies do. I just find it strange. Yeah, yeah there's no that. way. Yeah, I wouldn't do that either. I think yeah. you can you can make a mouth flap kind of be whatever you want it to be, but when you actually film someone and you have a very specific lip movement and then it's just like that's not what they said and it's yeah. not even remotely in the same time, yeah. I, I think though that like Chris, the thing with anime dubs and subs is, is some of them are much better than others. Like No, for, it's for a sure. quality so, thing. Well, yeah. it, it's uh, one JoJo though, I'd recommend season 1 of JoJo dubbed is incredible because it's hilarious. Uh, yeah. Season 2 is also really good because the guy who plays Joseph Joestar is great. Yeah. Everything else though, I'd go Japanese for Oh, JoJo. for sure. That's just like for me, I tend to when I watch TV cuz as all of us are, we play video games probably for the lion's share of our time. So I tend to watch things in the background and I just can't, I don't have the attention span to sit through it 
like that because it's too many episodes if it was a movie it's fine but like what what is it five seasons i'm not i don't have well but the, the thing the, with jojo is it, think of it less like five seasons it's more like it's five different shows yeah for sure <laughs> like so that that's kind of the thing that makes jojo a bit easier to get through because it's like each arc is a different protagonist a different story and mm-hmm. there's some links between the two of them and every so often there'll be a character from an, an older season that pops yeah. up but it's less like, oh, you have to know who this guy is. And more like if you'd seen the previous season, you'd be like, oh, shit, this guy's back. Cool. Yeah. But uh, for the most part, the, 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 each season is almost entirely disconnected from each other. Yeah. But I if should, you're I should. Watch, here's my recommendation to you, though. Yes. Watch the two episodes of JoJo that star Iggy, the little Boston Terrier. Yeah. Because it's in season three towards the end. Okay. You could watch those two episodes in a bubble only watching japanese because the english voice actor who plays him is terrible oh. it's like some of the most amazing hilarious shit you will ever see that's awesome <laughs> yeah. yeah and you know chris mm. kind of what you were talking about you, you, we play games for the lion's share of our time i know that's true of me and you for damn sure <laughs> um so when we're looking at that you know i think a big thing for me is um whenever i if i played if i watched anime like i played games as my primary format of essentially entertainment outside of music um which i think are very different things you know so games are like my primary form of storytelling that i partake in which is kind of unfortunate because a lot of games are written like shit but uh plenty are thankfully also written well but if i watched anime like that and got really into all those like weird little seasonal and i won't say weird that sounds like a pejorative but if i got into a lot of these smaller more niche seasonal animes that a lot of people get into Maybe I'd care more because I think that those are the ones that are going to be more likely to suffer from a dub. Um, but, you know, all the shows that I have watched, even just thinking back, I thought Sword Art Online was perfectly fine dubbed. I thought it sounded fantastic. Um, I thought Full Metal Alchemist, like uh, Mark mentioned earlier, both it and Brotherhood, outside of changing Alphonse's voice actor, I think are both fantastic. Um, and I think back on Trigun, Cowboy Bebop, Neon Genesis Evangelion. A lot of the classic ones, I think, were handled very well with dubs. So when I think of it, I'm like, I don't have any big examples of bad dubs. Even shows like S. Cryed, which is a pretty niche, not very big show, was, I thought, fantastic dubbed. So it's just one of those things. The more and more you get into it, the more I'd probably care. For sure. <laughs> I mean, the only anime I've ever finished, which was Assassination Classroom, was all oh, yeah. I watched entirely oh, dubbed. You did I, finish I, I that one? I remember you it. watching oh, yeah. it. It but. is so good. I watched it in like two days. But that's more of my point is like I, I watched 90% of that show while I was working Fry at work because I can listen to it dubbed and then pay attention and then I can look over and see the action, you know? Yeah, sure. But yeah, um, so I guess that brings uh-huh. us to the end. We just got to say that despite Blake not being here, I did reach out and his movie that we are watching next week is called The Dark and Wicked so that's the cool dark and wicked and we have a guest next week as well we correct? do yes um mark do you want to uh just give you all your socials and how people can find you before brett closes the show out 
Uh, yeah, sure. I guess uh, the easiest way to find me is um, I'm probably on Twitter and at Cyborg Mark. It's the only place that I'm at Cyborg Mark because someone else took Mark the Cyborg. Pretty much <laughs> everywhere else I'm Mark the Cyborg, including YouTube, and that that's my YouTube channel's name. But most of my actual videos you'll find on Geeks and Gamers, which is a, a much larger channel than mine. Um, although if you don't want to subscribe to Geeks and Gamers because you're tired of hearing about how terrible Disney Star Wars is, which is really what most of the videos on Geeks and Gamers <laughs> are about, um, there's a playlist on my channel that just has all the videos that i make for them so if you just want to watch some video game reviews uh easiest way to find my stuff would be on my channel in that playlist cool and yeah that's pretty much it awesome man well thank you for joining us it was it was a good time i'm glad you came on yeah thank you very much for having me hell yeah all right brett take it away buddy all right guys thank you guys for joining us uh, like we said the dark and the wicked is that right chris correct mundo Mundo. Okay, check that out if you want to join us for next week's episode. Uh, remember, if you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at matinee underscore midweek. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at midweek matinee. Very similar situation there, uh, <laughs> Mark. <laughs> Some bastard stole it out from underneath us. Uh, but you can also find Mr. Chris, if you want to, at figs, F-I-G-Z-2-1-K on Twitter, and go yell at him for whatever take you want to, or praise him for whatever take you want to. You can find me on the Twitter for my weekly gaming podcast, Triangle Square to PlayStation Podcast, where if you want to hear me and Saul, my co-host, and sometimes me and Chris, either on that or the Sideshow Spoiler Chats, you can do so. That's at Triangle S-Q-R-D. And if you want to support the show with more than just your time, which we are always so thankful for head over to patreon.com slash nartech and consider giving as little as one dollar per month helps us out a lot with equipment cost and cost of having the show hosted and of course you get to support the show directly while we give you nice perks like early access to the show where you get it five days ahead of everyone else typically as well as getting your name shouted out at the end of all content that we do so without further ado our newest patron this last month has been mr mark schutz but past that we also have kyle grimm Josh Jarrell, Matthew Green, my name is Dan, Luke Bartolomeo, Sean Santarude, Funk Turkey, Danny Villiobos, Corey Hickerson, Blake Popst, Kevin Bacon Bits, Eric McAllister, Shadowist, Steven Salazar, The Stonard, Rich, Constantly Kenny, Solitary Red, Chris Figs, Zachary Sawyer, Landis, Rude Days 93, Brian, Donovan Williams, William Digital Spooker, Derek Porter, Josh Ayers, Joshua Lago, Sean One Neo, Tyler Powers, El Chabib, Jason Clendenning, and Richard Schaefer. Thank you guys so much. And again, if you want to support the show with more than just your time, patreon.com slash nartech. Thank you guys. Hello, Looker, and congratulations. You have discovered the secret message. Midweek Matinee is produced and edited by Christopher Figueroa. Music is by Joshua Lago. Thank you for your support and for enjoying all these movies with us. And lastly, please send your iTunes reviews to Old Pink, Care of the Funny Farm.